Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. My guest today is Tom Robinson. Tom Robinson is a senior writer, editor, and researcher for Beyond Today magazine and booklets, and managing editor for our online UCG Bible commentary. He's also an elder serving in the Columbia Fulton, Missouri congregation. Tom is also author of our online publication, The Throne of Britain, Its Biblical Origin and Future. So welcome to our podcast, Tom. Thank you. Uh, wonderful to be able to talk about this today. Yeah, we're very, very happy to have you here. We have worked together in editorial meetings and content meetings, and I have just always appreciated Tom's contributions. I've always looked up to him as a great researcher. So we wanted to talk about some of the things that have been occupying our time here this past week, actually the last couple of weeks. Queen Elizabeth died on September 8th, and that has been, even though it was expected, finally when it came, it was an end of a 70-year reign, which is about the length of one-third the history of the United States. It was something that made a huge ripple on the entire world. In fact, when her funeral was conducted just a few days ago now, it just seems like a long time ago, but a few days ago, that four billion people, half the population of the world, at least saw some part of that funeral. So, Tom, today we want to talk about events that are connected with this because we had the funeral, but also a lot of questions or a lot of interest has been sought in just the entire British monarchy. The Washington Post had an article about what's the big deal about the monarchy. <laughs> There's no such monarchy, no, no monarchy even close anywhere in the world that had the effect. 200 or more world leaders were gathered for the funeral at Westminster Abbey. And it was just really, truly a spectacle. It was emotional. It was something that really uh, uh, struck at me, too. I, I used to live in England for a couple of years when I went to college there and have traveled there many times and, and really f have a great deal of feeling for those people. And this event had a lot of impact on me. But I'd like Tom here, who's written the book about the throne of Britain, its biblical origin and future, to be able to talk to us about some of the questions about the monarchy, how it biblically ties into things that perhaps some of us are not fully aware of. So Tom, I'll just let you go ahead and go from here. Uh, sure. The, um, the British throne is uh, obviously very important uh, as the throne of Great Britain, which as we understand uh, from history and prophecy has to do with uh, the descendants of Joseph along with the United States. Uh, Joseph being uh, the father of two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim was prophesied to become a multitude of nations, and we understand that is fulfilled in the uh, British Commonwealth nations of uh, English-speaking heritage, and we also know that uh, the United States is uh, Manasseh. So these are um, powerful countries in the world, according to prophecy, and of course we have a booklet on that, United States and Britain and Prophecy, if you want to find out the details about that. But then what about this, uh, this throne that is over the country? Well, we can also look at n numerous prophecies, you know, starting with um, Sarah was told that, I guess kings would come from her as well as these nations. She would be the mother of nations and kings of peoples. And this had to do with the, the beginning of, this, of these Israelite kings, but that was not only over one nation, it was gonna be over a multitude of nations. 
and this uh, prophecy continues down. It keeps getting uh, broken down with these uh, various patriarchs until we find out that Judah would receive the kingship and the national blessings of greatness would go to Ephraim and Manasseh. This um, leaves us with what's going to happen in the future where these nations will be moving away from the promised land uh, and then Judah continued with a kingship that was descended from David. But at a certain point that ended uh, and uh, there was no more king. And of course this gets to the issues of David and uh, promises made to him specifically about his descendants reigning on the throne. And we can talk about that a little bit. Well, one thing, Tom, is that people will, will ask another, or they have asked me to, they are aware of some of those things that are written biblically and they also are connecting what's happening historically uh, with what they see now. I, I think a great interesting point would be, I'm sure that you'll bring this out, is uh, where these things meet. Uh, how can we know? How can we know that some of those promises made to Sarah, even you know, in the book of Genesis, it talks about God working through that family and there will be rulership on the earth that will end up at the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, it really is amazing the story. Well, what I was going to say about that was, um, it's a good point. This isn't something that we can easily just, uh, I mean, we do have genealogies and so forth that that kind of trace this history that go back all the way from, let's say, David uh, down through the various kings and then and then uh, coming over to, uh, as we understand, Ireland and Scotland and, and England, uh, the history of the British monarchy. Uh, but I would say you can't quite get get there from here in terms of we do have these genealogies, but they're not necessarily ironclad in all that they tell us because there's some murky periods of history here. In fact, I have a quote, and this is from Ronald Hicks. He wrote this in 2011 in an article, The Sacred Landscape of Ancient Ireland in Archaeology Magazine. He says, one of the compelling things about doing archaeological work in Ireland is that the early medieval manuscripts preserve so many tales surrounding these sites. Some stories are clearly mythological, others are pseudo-history, medieval invention. It isn't always easy to tell them apart. The study of Irish mythology and ancient manuscripts has been limited by a number of circumstances, beginning with the prohibition against owning old Irish manuscripts during the Reformation in the early 17th century. Book burnings were common and nearly all the early Irish material was lost. There was no scholarship conducted until the 1830s when some manuscripts that hadn't been destroyed began to come to light. Over the years, only a few researchers could read Old Irish, and there are still relatively few today who can. In addition, the scholars and scribes who wrote the manuscripts often use an even earlier form of the Irish language, so translations can differ. Nonetheless, manuscripts are crucial to any understanding of pre-Christian sites in Ireland. And I would say about that, that it's crucial to understanding these, uh, these historical periods and, and who these various rulers were. I mean, I've seen, you know, uh, different people in these genealogical listings all over the place. They're, they're, they're not uh, coherent, let's say, with, with uh, each other and certainly not necessarily with what we might uh, think it, it probably mm -hmm. is. Uh, but I will say this, despite all of that, in a way it doesn't matter because what you end up with is a whole lot of information that can fit what it has to mean when you look at the Bible as a whole and prophecy and where these things go. And so what we end up with is we end up with promises made to Joseph and, and to Judah, frankly. Mm -hmm. We know that the monarchy would continue to be with Judah 
according to the scepter promise that's in Genesis 49:10 until the Messiah comes. So there has to be a Jewish uh, scepter that is is not departed from Judah. Now you say, well, has it departed from Judah? I mean, somebody might say, well, it departed when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem in uh, you know 587 or six there BC. Well, that was uh, 500 years even before Christ. Obviously, we know that he is going to ultimately inherit the throne of David. Well, that was more than 500 years before he came, but he didn't even come at that time to reign. He didn't come to take over the throne. That won't come until he comes back. And the fact that he won't come back uh, until beyond now, I mean, that puts it over 2,500 years. Is there a 2,500 years in this gap uh, between the time of David's throne existing and, and Christ taking it over. Well, that, that frankly doesn't make any sense, especially when you look in prophecies like in Psalm 89, that says, God said, you know, the, that David's throne would be built up to all generations. And that that's not just, uh, that doesn't account for a such a huge gap. It does account for some short gaps, by the way. We know there's been a few times, uh, even in, a, in, in ancient Judah, for instance, where uh, I think there was an eight year gap uh, before uh, when Athaliah of, the, of Israel was on the throne. She was not in the line of David. She took over down in Judah, and then it went back to a, a Davidic monarch. Uh, so that was an interregnum uh, that is allowed by this prophecy of the throne existing in all generations. Uh, I'd say a, another one would be the time that, uh, that, that the throne ended in Judah. Uh, there was an interregnum there, but it doesn't, it couldn't be 500 years it couldn't be 2500 years because you would have a this this a denial of this prophecy that david's throne would continue and be built up to all generations so it must be that the throne exists in the world today it must have existed for all this time and the only thing that fits is that it would be this british monarchy there is like you said no other monarchy that is um, looked to like this monarchy. I was talking the other day to someone and it was saying, well, the, the, the king and queen of Spain are gonna be there. And they were saying, well, I didn't even realize that King uh, Spain still had a king. <laughs> and it's just, it, you know, and it, it's, uh, but yes, they do. But there's, there's nothing like the British monarchy. There, there never has been anything like the British monarchy and especially in the world today. And when we think is Jesus going to come to an existing throne, the Jewish people, in in uh, Israel, the land of Israel, don't have that throne. Uh, that throne exists in one place, and it is in the in the British Isles. And I can answer more specifically. Well, one thing that was just truly amazing at the funeral, and I saw Sky News's summary of the whole event, which was excellent. It's still on there. If you go to Sky News, it's one of the uh, little programs they have available. But everything, all the way to the very end, you know, where she's entombed at St George's uh, Chapel there at Windsor Castle and where the crown is given back to the government and also that stick is cut, uh, broken in half from, right. uh, 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 that, that was so moving about the fact that this, this represents the rule. She was endowed or she was given stewardship of that for that period of time and it seemed to be something bigger than just a, wearing a big hat with a bunch of diamonds in it. It really did represent something very powerful. and. Nowhere near have there been people that have been so fascinated by it and even respectful of it. You take a look at Queen Elizabeth and the, the, all the people that have come to her. Here's a five foot four woman 
who ruled for 70 years to have that type of respect. And I feel like it was beyond something that's natural. There's no other monarchy, again, in the world, whether it be Swedish or the, a lot of countries have even abandoned monarchies like France and Germany. But to have that type of government, if you want to put it that way, that really does have a say, even though it's not directly governing the country, it does have a great deal of say. And I feel like it's protected Britain from becoming a country of demagogue. And when all the different things have been said about what the Commonwealth has done, you take a look at what the English language has influenced. It, it truly is beyond just natural explanation. Certainly. Yeah, the, um, I mean, looking at this biblically and and. And, and prophecy sort of directs us to understand the history. I mean, there are a lot that we can come up with in, in history that matches what the, the direction that is given to us by prophecy. And I'll just point out a few things. First of all, you know, I, I mentioned we start with the, uh, the scepter promise there in Genesis 49 about uh, how it would stay with Judah to the end. And then, of course, we have the Davidic covenant. Uh, that comes up in 2 Samuel 7, where a specific prophecy is given to David uh, through Nathan, the prophet, that David would have a perpetual dynasty. It would, it would not cease, even if there were dis disobedience among the various kings of that dynasty, it would continue. And then we come to the prophecy of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33, uh, where it's very clearly declared to be an unbreakable promise of an unbreakable dynasty that would not cease. And it mentions a few specific things. It says David would never fail to have a descendant on his throne. Well, that's quite astounding because, again, we, we, I mentioned that gap a minute ago. That that creates a problem here in trying to understand this. And and even those who understand that ultimately the Messiah is going to uh, take over that throne, uh, that they're, they're, we're still left with that problem of a gap. And another factor is it mentions there a plurality of rulers. It doesn't just mention a single ruler. It's talking about a perpetual dynasty of a succession of kings Not that, that would continue, not simply a uh, one who would take over at the, at the very end and continue on forever, which of course he will. I definitely don't want to deny that. And that's the ultimate fullness of these prophecies is in the Messiah when his reign goes on for eternity and there won't be any more succession beyond him. But, uh, but at the same time, the um the, there is this prophecy of these of these various rulers continuing as i mentioned in psalm 89 we have the throne built up to all generations it says there it will be the highest of the kings of the earth it says that this throne will be planted in the sea and that it would be over the seas and of course we see that you know in uh, rule britannia britannia rule the waves the the navy of the british uh, ruled the world for a long time then uh how was this achieved well, the fascinating thing that there's two real big things in in uh, scripture that shows us how how this happened as far as a transfer goes, and that and one place is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was given a special commission. He was given a commission to be over kingdoms and nations. It says, and that he was supposed to uh, uproot, and that's understood to be uprooting the nation, uprooting the monarchy from there, and then to to plant and rebuild. And evidently that means to, to plan to rebuild elsewhere. Jeremiah did not uh, replant the monarchy and the people of Judah into the promised land. That that happened somewhere else. That that's that continued on. And then we have in parallel with that, we have a prophecy in Ezekiel 17 
where Ezekiel is given a, a vision of you know of this um, of this power from the east coming and taking away uh, this great Lebanon cedar, which is symbolic of uh, the nation of of Judah and its kingship there, and taking away its people to that land. But then, it, but then it switches at the end of that prophecy. But God says, "But I will take this." tender shoot off the very top of this tree and i'm going to take it i'm going to plant it in israel well that matches up with what jeremiah said because he said god would not fail to have a ruler of david's descent reigning over israel it doesn't even say judah there it says over israel so there had to be a transfer from both of those prophecies we can see there had to be a transfer occurring that would take the the monarchy out of judah and replant that monarchy in Israel. And it, it moves it at that time. And we have it, you know, doubly confirmed in these prophecies that that's what's ha what happened. Now, how did it happen? We also have another indication where we see at the end of the book of Jeremiah, he was accompanying to an, a, a party of Jews that left the country and they went to, to Egypt. Now, uh, Jeremiah himself objected to going there, but these people thought, well, we're gonna go down there and take refuge with the Pharaoh. Well, in that, it actually mentions, and we know that all of Zedekiah, who was the king mm -hmm. of uh, Judah, his sons were killed. But here it mentions the king's daughters, specifically mentions them, the king's daughters accompanying Jeremiah far, you know, to this other place. And that alone, I mean, when we see that, there's significance to that. We're, we know that his commission was to move that uh, Davidic monarchy. And it was said that that would be done in Ezekiel. And here we see him with the king's daughters through whom uh, the inheritance could pass if there were no remaining sons. I mean, we have a, a mechanism right there for how this could have operated. And then we know historically all these, uh, all these various histories and legends of ancient Ireland uh, that and Scotland that talk about how the, there was this transfer that basically ends up being Jeremiah bringing one of the king's daughters over to Ireland, or at least part of the way. There's um, some dispute in, in, the, in the various histories and traditions about when this took place that she married in to the line of the kings of Israel. But in any case, I do believe we, we lay this out pretty well in, our, uh, in the publication that I put together. But uh, how this transferred over to Ireland ended up being the beginnings of what became the British monarchy today, because we know that the British monarchy today didn't start in Britain, it came from Scotland, and that monarchy in Scotland came from Ireland. Well, I mean, you put these two things together, that you have the British monarchy of today can be traced back to Ireland, and you have all these traditions that have uh, Jeremiah taking the, the um, remaining daughter of the lineage of David over to Ireland and with these other things you know of course we have the stone of destiny as part of that as well yeah and we'll be some talking of these other things uh -huh. that, that's uh, that that brings this all together that that's your connection and uh, yes there's a lot of legend around it we can't be certain about all of it but it, it actually does fit many uh, scenarios of how this could have happened and frankly it must have happened because it otherwise there's no continuance of that throne. That That's the only thing that really does make sense. Well, one thing, Tom, I think that people don't realize is that places like Ireland, Northwest Europe, were not that populated. I mean, right. civilization all came out of the Middle East, went to all four directions out of the Middle East. 
Europe was coming out of kind of an ice age where <laughs> they were coming into becoming populated and there were movements of people from the Middle East going in, into that pretty much after the 8th, 7th centuries uh, from the Middle East. And so it's very reasonable that Jeremiah went and made that plantation, you know, in Ireland. Some of the charts that you see that I have looked at this past week, you know, show, of course, the kings of Ireland, then moving on to our, the our kings of Argyll, then the kings of Scotland, and then, of course, it you know, moved down to England, and then you're kind of home free with the rest of the uh, genealogy. But that's the place that's kind of foggy. I, I, I feel we have a reasonable explanation for it. Let me okay. let me add one more thing okay, about sure. that, and that is that uh, when Jeremiah went there, it's it, it, it was there were people living there. A lot of the people that were there had already come from the land of Israel. There were various migrations, as you had mentioned, at the time of the Assyrian conquest. There were some that went up through between the Black and Caspian Seas and went that way into Europe. There were others that sailed around and came into Western Europe uh, via Spain and went up into. Um, these areas of, of Britain and Ireland. So there actually were, especially there were Danites there, as we understand, mm -hmm. uh, and those people that were there. Then you have, uh, at the time of Jeremiah, is actually the time we can fit with what's called the Milesian uh, invasion of Ireland. And that's people that came from uh, uh, the area of ancient uh, Greece, the, the city of Miletus there, which was probably in, where the Israelite dynasty had passed through from, well, actually the, the Jewish dynasty, I guess, that, that became the, the dynasty of Israel. Uh, anyway, that all together moved up into Ireland about this time uh, of Jeremiah taking the stone. So it's, it's, he, it's not like he went out on his own in the sense that he just went somewhere. He went somewhere that God had already planted the people of Israel so that the throne of David would reign over them. Mm -hmm. You know what, the one thing, Tom, that uh, maybe as a side thing, people had knowledge of their roots in the Middle East. Yes. And there was um, one particular chronicle that I came across in visiting uh, outside of Vienna, Austria, the city of Stockerau. I visited it with one of the faculty members from Ambassador College. And it was called the Austrian Chronicles, the history of, of Austria. And they listed as the first king of Austria, Abraham. Oh. <laughs> Abraham. Now, I, th I think that that was more than just like choosing somebody out of a book, you know, blindly. Sure. Uh, I really do feel like there was a connection there. And it was just very interesting that they acknowledged their roots going back to Abraham. So right. that's just a small thing, but it was a very, very knowledgeable, it was a very, very credible document that, that we looked at. That sounds great. I'd like to see that. That that's very interesting. And we saw the previous visitors who were there. It was the, our German director who had been there before, but he told us to go there. They had you know visitors sign in. It was interesting to see who had been there. But that was that was fascinating to us. That it is that Abraham would be listed in that way. Well, I was just gonna mention the fact that again, people will you know, and of course we we've often given this tradition of, of Jeremiah bringing the, this one daughter, Teotepi, to marry into the, uh, to marry Harriman. Uh, these names are, are possibly people that really existed. These people did exist, but as far as exactly who they were in, the, in this transfer is a little bit difficult to figure out. And I've gone through that 
in a lot of detail in the publication that I put together. I will say that one thing that, that is stressed in the publication is that a lot of this is taking these traditions and, you know, by conjecture, trying to, to fit these things in time. And in many ways, they do, but there's also many other ways that people can pick them apart. But it's hard to do that when what you really got is a, is a lot of information that can't really be fit into an exact time sequence so that we have, as I mentioned a minute ago, various scenarios that would still fit the overall transfer that happened. So that, that doesn't deny the transfer just because you can't exactly fit it, because you can't exactly fit hardly anything from that time period. And so it's a matter of just understanding how this must have occurred. We don't, you know, we don't have all the details, but we have the overall view. And I do believe it's uh, pretty clear in that way. Uh, along with maybe the Stone of Destiny, that's another thing. Yeah, the Stone of Destiny. I know that that is that that is a an, another very interesting point that perhaps subject to some interpretation and 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 question. But I find that stone to be very interesting, particularly that uh, so many have been crowned on that stone, and that it was moved in 1996. It was moved out of Westminster yeah. and taken back up to Scotland. Yeah, it was taken out of Westminster, moved to Scotland, and now, and I thought it was gone. <laughs> But right. now they have made a special point of bringing it down by Land Rover from from Scotland for the coronation. Yeah, they they said they were going to do that. I think even John Major announced that when it was first taken up there back in 96, which, by the way, 1996 was exactly 700 years after it had been taken, which is why it was returned at that point. It, it had been taken by Edward and brought down from Scotland to London, and then it was, uh, so then it was returned then. But it wasn't to stay there. It was there on loan uh, because it actually was still owned by the British uh, monarchy, uh -huh. which kind of makes sense because the monarchy of uh, that existed in Britain was the same monarchy, not only from Edward, but from uh, the Scottish kings as well that was transferred actually later than the throne came down. The, the throne, uh, or, or sorry, later than the stone, the stone came down I think it was 1296. It was much later than that. It was in the beginning of the 1600s that James the the first of Scotland became James the sixth of Great Britain, uh, and that's when the the actual Scottish monarchy became the monarchy of Great Britain. So well, it actually followed the stone. It wasn't all together at once. Well, what what is exactly this stone of scone and the stone of destiny? Right. Well, this is um, it's a a charged subject. I guess a lot of people debate what, what's going on here, but, uh, and as far as whether it's the, the real stone of, of legend, of course, many people will say that uh, it comes from, we know that it, at least by tradition, this stone came from uh, Schoon in, in Scotland, but some people say this was a fake one, that Edward wasn't given the real one, that it was kept there, there's reason, there's arguments for and against that. I think it's unlikely. I guess we'll know one day. The uh, it seems like, in other words, it seems to me that it would be the 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 actual one. Uh, there's another. Then there's the issue of where did that where did the stone come from? Well, the tradition says before that it came from the west of Scotland, which was then brought to there uh, from Ireland, and that it was the Leophile which is the, the stone of fate or stone of destiny upon which the Irish kings crowned or next to which they were, were crowned, the high kings of Ireland. And then that is uh, understood by many to be the stone 
that was brought by Jeremiah from the promised land. Now, why do why is that even thought that there was a stone? Well, we know that Davidic kings in Judah were there. Were, there's a mention of a pillar, like a, a king standing by a pillar or sting, standing next to or on even a pillar uh, at the point of uh, coronation, and that this is a tradition that existed of having a pillar stone there uh, during these uh, crownings. And then the earliest mention of a pillar stone actually is found in Genesis, in Genesis 28, where at Bethel, uh, well, before it was called Bethel, I guess uh, Jacob laid down there and he slept on a stone at night and and uh, used one for a pillow. And, and then he saw this vision of angels coming and down, coming up and down from from heaven to this stone and then going out into the world. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God. Uh And he says that he actually anointed that stone. And that's at that moment, he was also given this prophecy that his descendants would spread abroad and go forth uh, around the world. Well, then later in Genesis 49, the the prophecy was given again at Bethel. This many years later, he returned to Bethel, and then it says again he anointed this stone and he called it Bethel. So here he says this is the house of God. He anoints this stone. Then he was given an, again a prophecy about his descendants spreading abroad as these colonizers. Well, it's very interesting if you look then later in uh, Genesis 49, the prophecy I mentioned earlier of Judah retaining the kingship, but where it mentions Joseph, Joseph it says that he would be a fruitful bough spreading over the wall. His descendants would be great colonizers. It's really talking about. And in that same context, it mentions a stone. And it says from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Others translations say the shepherd stone or the guardian stone. We know that ultimately the stone represents Christ, who is the uh, the stone from heaven. He's the stone which the builders rejected. He's the stone, foundation stone. He's all of that spiritually. But it does seem that there was this physical stone tied to Jacob and his progeny that would that was significant in this way, that it symbolized the spreading abroad of the descendants of Jacob and then later even of Joseph. But, um, and, and there's a lot of tie-ins to how this would have become associated with. But, but the idea is that that stone became the stone that was used by the Davidic monarchy and that that stone was then later brought by Jeremiah. Uh, Do we know that for certain? We don't know it for certain. I I don't know if there's any way to know it for certain, Uh, but it does make sense. Uh, In fact, I'm not sure what else Genesis 49 could exactly be talking about, because it's not specifically talking about Christ coming from Joseph, because we know Christ didn't come from Joseph. He came from from Judah. So what else that might be talking about, I I don't know. It seems to me that it makes sense that it is talking about this this stone and it is a stone of destiny in that sense well uh, that, that, that'll be great to find out for sure one day but it's really quite quite a story it really is quite a story and it, it, it uh, seems to be reasonable speculation i mean that's how archaeologists really come to their conclusions through guessing on things and i think that this is more than a guess right well there's a lot to it uh actually what i was astounded and i put this in the publication when i was doing research to find that um This tradition of an anointed stone existed among the Greeks in their mythology, and the stone uh, that that was called Vitalis. Well, that comes from Bethel. That's actually the same word. (laughs) And and it's it's where you have this tradition that that was apparently uh, taken 
you know, among the Greeks, and these were probably Jews, actual Jews that uh, were labeled as Greeks, that became, that, that this whole tradition transferred. And it could be that what we're really talking about is the tradition of an anointed stone as opposed to the exact stone. But I do think there's a good case to be made that it is the exact stone. We'll argue because the one that, that they use today is sort of a pink pinkish buff right. sandstone uh, that they say could have been quarried there near Schoon. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, uh, but, but the problem with that is that, well, I did see uh, something saying that it was, uh, there's a place about a mile south where it, some old works there where it could have been brought from. But I'm not sure they've found a large enough uh, deposit for a stone that big to be quarried out of that kind of sandstone in that area. I, I haven't seen that. I would I would like to see that. I haven't seen that it is. That stone was brought from Western Scotland. They, they argue that. But again, nobody's ever proven that. It It is true that that stone couldn't have come from Ireland. And, it, and I'm not sure it, it could have come from Scotland, something of that size, maybe the same kind of stone uh, could have. Uh, and then they have the question of, well, was it brought from the Holy Land? And some people say, well, there's no place in the Holy Land like this either. But uh, somebody did make a claim that they identified a place where it could have come from and that it's near Bethel. So mm -hmm. again, this, these are questions that we have and it would be, it would be nice to know. But, but look, I yeah. will say this, and I, I mentioned this to you a minute ago, it, it isn't necessarily critical the, the could could the actual stone be still sitting in scotland i guess that's possible it could be and then you say well wait a minute well why wouldn't it come with the monarchy well i just mentioned uh, shortly ago that we know that edward brought that stone down in 1296 and and for 300 years the monarchy was not with the stone so with at least it wasn't with that stone unless there was still one sitting up in scotland we don't we don't know. And again, are we talking about an actual stone or just the tradition of anointing this stone uh, for for representing the kingship? There's a lot of questions with it, but I would def definitely recommend that people read that section that that is on the Stone of Destiny to uh, learn some more details. Yeah, it's a stone that weighs 338 pounds, and that's something that you know, just a couple <laughs> of people can can pick up. Actually, that stone was stolen from uh, Westminster. Uh, in 1950, 1950 right <laughs> four guys took it and they broke it they broke it right. you believe so yeah it, it has it has that history but what's important yeah, and some it, people say that's not they say well when this the scots took it because it ended up at arbroath abbey and they say well the one they gave the british back then was not the real one but that's apparently definitely not true the the um uh, we can see where that where the stone was mended actually i think it was in the in the 90s they they actually found the, the bars that were placed inside of it to kind of hold it together uh, and it definitely would match up with that particular one that was taken. I think that it's just fascinating what all this tradition is and all the things connected with with the monarchy and and even the discussion here of the stone of something deeper that it, that it represents. It's truly amazing how Christianity and the translation of the Bible for example and golden age of missionaries in the 1800s all took place in the British Commonwealth, the British Empire. It was something that was able to promote the name of Christ. I, I was really touched by the funeral as to how many people made reference to Jesus Christ and read scriptures. The new Prime yes. Minister, Liz Truss, I mean, I was just really the way she beautifully read, I mean, she, she read a number of passages that were very eloquently stated. I thought, 
wow, this this is not a secular statement at all. <laughs> she was, from her heart, she said that. Of course, you'd expect the clerics to do that, because that's their job. But to have other people who commented that way, especially Elizabeth Truss, and of course, Queen Elizabeth's faith in looking to Jesus Christ as the one who, who was her guide. I mean, she made those statements, and we've written about that, you know, quite a bit. I was going to say, I think, I think Elizabeth was responsible for all those um, things that were read at the funeral because I think you know this has been planned for a while but and so I, I, I do believe that uh, some of these people might not naturally have have said all of that uh, but I think the, the, the queen was not bequeathing a very ecumenical spirit in that way of bringing all the religions together it was really mm -hmm. about actually what you said Liz Truss read read from John where it says no one comes to the father except through Jesus mm -hmm. I mean, and that is pretty stunning to me. I, I was amazed by that statement as well. No, I didn't think that those were things that they naturally prepared. I was thinking uh, maybe something to tie this into what's ultimately coming, of course. Uh, we know that um, Britain is going to go through terrible turmoil. Uh, it's going to be brought down in the end time. Prophecy tells us that, along with the United States and other Israelite nations. And there will be probably one of these, uh, I mentioned these interregnums where there's a, a period where, where there's not a monarch reigning, that, that could happen because Britain will be taken over by, a, by this uh, beast power. Mm -hmm. But then Jesus Christ will return and he will assume the throne. Now, what throne? That, that's what I wanted to mention. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of very interesting things. First of all, we know that in the beginning, when Israel was formed as a nation, God was their king. Samuel talks about this in 1 Samuel 8, 7, you know, it, that uh, he was sad that the people were wanting a human king like the nations around. And God says, well, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. And in 1, uh, 1 Samuel 12, he, he actually mentions, you asked, Samuel says, you asked for a human king when the, the Lord your God was your king. So it specifically says that God was their king. But then, of course, they got Saul and that didn't work out. And then God gave them the Davidic line. And that continued on. Well, the Davidic kings uh, and this line of kings in Israel, they were to reign as kings for God. They were not their, their own to total sovereignty. They were to be kings ruling for God. And it actually says in uh, 1 Chronicles 29, 23, that Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as mm -hmm. king instead mm -hmm. of David, his father. And so Solomon was sitting on the Lord's throne and, and was given to sit with God in that sense on the throne ruling over the nation. Uh, but who was that God? That God we understand was Jesus Christ pre before he came as a man. He was the ruler of ancient Israel. And so he, in that sense, was the founder of the Davidic dynasty. And he is the ultimate inheritor of the Davidic dynasty. When he returns, he is not only a descendant of David to take over the throne, it was his throne all along. And he is going to retake that throne. He's going to, uh, as he was prophesied to, you know, Mary was told by the angel that he will inherit the throne of his father David and reign over Israel forever. And we should understand that the throne of Israel is actually the throne of the kingdom of God that will go on forever. That is an amazing thing to understand the importance of that. So this throne that exists in the world today that continues on, it is essentially the throne of the Lord that God is allowing a human occupant to be in today until Jesus returns and takes back that rule, which will be a world, a world over rule of the world ruling kingdom of God 
uh, which is the kingdom of Israel uh, in glory. That That is what we are talking about. You know, Tom, what really struck me when they removed the crown from her coffin casket, we call it, the ruling stick, that uh, there was something very, very moving about that because here it was something that she was steward of for 70 years from the time that she was coronated uh, with that very same crown. And now she's dead. She's served her time. She's been a servant queen. Well done, well done, Elizabeth. But now that crown is, is there ultimately to be given back to Jesus Christ. That's the way I felt. That is yes. going to go back to the one who will be coronated as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and all, all the language that we see in the book of Revelation. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, the in Ezekiel 21, we're given a prophecy about about what we call the three overturns. The, in, in the New King James, it says overthrown, but the throne was not ever really overthrown. It, it still exists. It, it went on. It just was overturned from where it was. Mm-hmm. We know that it was actually uprooted from that land and planted elsewhere. But it's interesting because in that prophecy in Ezekiel 21, in verse 25, it's, you know, remove the diadem, take off the crown. Uh, and, and in the process of this, in verse 27, it's, you know, overturn, overturn. I will make it overturn. And it will be no more overturned, in other words, until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. And that's a capital H. That's talking about Christ coming. So there were these three overturns in the past, as we understand. There was moving the throne from Judah over to Ireland. Later it was moved from Ireland up to Scotland. Then it was moved from Scotland down to London. Those were the three, and it would be no more overturned until he comes whose right it is, and that will be another final overturn to Jerusalem for Jesus to rule the world from that same throne. That's very, very fascinating, very interesting. That falls into place, and it may be a lot sooner than we think. You bet. Tom, it's been just really great talking to you today and sharing your thoughts. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for The Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at thecubic at gmail.com, V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.